on Ag News Daily. Trying for folks not to have to compete against Uncle Sam, uh, therefore providing the opportunity for young beginning farmers and ranchers to become involved in Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Pearson coming to you today. Delaney is walking across the stage down in Lubbock, Texas, to get her master's degree from Texas Tech University. So we're cheering her on while I am doing the podcast solo. Got a good conversation today with Michael Doltz from the Iowa Soybean Association. We'll be talking about just what the Farm Bill means for growers, what we can expect, or at least what he is expecting with regard to our second round of payments from the market facilitation program, and of course just some other general policy things to think about as we head into the weekend. Now, we do have some news coming out that I suppose it is my duty to bring to you, our loyal listeners. And it is a slow news day for a Friday. Either I'm looking in all the wrong places, or there's just not a whole lot going on today. We did get a note this, I guess it was early this morning, that uh, Brazil made an announcement. Their uh, Ag Minister, Blaromaggi, said earlier today that they are prepared in the event that China removes tariffs on U.S. soy. Remember, that is what has been driving those premiums down there in Brazil. And he has said they have been uh, preparing. They are expecting the prices without tariffs for the prices in Chicago and Brazil to converge and bring greater predictability to the soy market, and he said that will benefit Brazilian farmers. Now, that means to me that even though we're not expecting a huge jump in Brazilian soy acres this next year, we can continue to expect Brazilian farmers to expand their acreage and plant more beans over time. So that is definitely something to keep an eye on. Here's what he said actually in a quote. He said, quote, Brazil is absolutely prepared. The withdrawal of tariffs there in China for American soy won't have any influence. The market will return to its normal baseline where it was before or very close, end quote. I've got a feeling a lot of growers here in the U.S. hope he is right about that, that the market returns to where it was last May before that June tumble in the soy market drove prices down to their, hmm, frustrating level that we see today. Well, less frustrating today than perhaps they were two weeks ago. Well, USDA published an interesting study. They looked at agricultural total factor productivity growth by country. So this is when you incorporate everything into production, how productive is a country at utilizing their existing agricultural resources. So this wouldn't include Brazil bringing new ground into production. This is just utilizing what we have already. Standard, or I guess the total productivity standard, I suppose, is uh, growth has been growing between 1 and 2% a year since the 1970s. The U.S. falls right into that category. The U.S., Canada, Mexico, Russia, uh, Afghanistan, Australia, Peru, Colombia, Venezuela, which was kind of shocking to me, Overall, our productivity has been going growing at 1% to 2% per year. That's pretty well what, you, what you'd expect for a developed nation. We already have productivity more or less maxed out. We're relying on genetic improvements. We're relying on uh, smaller improvements at the margin to improve our productivity. Think of um, you know, precision agriculture. Precision ag isn't giving us 20 bushels per acre advantage. It's giving us 3 to 4 five to six percentage increases in productivity. However, countries like China, Saudi Arabia, which surprised me, 
and Brazil are seeing total factor productivity growth of over 2% per year. Now this can be explained a lot of different ways. One is that they weren't operating at peak production. They were struggling to kind of catch up with the developed world, and they still are, but they can catch up a lot faster given the technology that's available today versus what we had available to us back in the 70s. So we will continue to see pressure come from those developing countries. They will continue to be bigger competitors of ours here as we look out to the future. Here's a story I thought was kind of interesting. I'm a huge fan of Culver's. I don't know if you're outside the Midwest. I guess I don't know how far Culver's range is, but Culver's is a, I suppose, a fast casual, fast food joint. They serve frozen custard, I think, is the Culver's thing. I love it. I always call it ice cream, but I don't think it is. It's excellent. It's delicious stuff. Uh, they serve great burgers. They're butter burgers. It's been noted of me that I can spot a cheap vehicle from miles away, and I can spot a Culver's from miles away, and both of those things are very accurate. The reason I bring this up is Culver's has for a long time been a big supporter of American agriculture. They're known for painting on barns. Thank you to the American farmer. Um, they're tireless supporters of what happens in agriculture. They have also donated more than $2 million to support agriculture education. Um, they do a deal called Scoops of Thanks Day, where guests can receive a scoop of fresh frozen custard. There we go. So it is custard in return for a dollar or more donation to a local ag program. Restaurants and the Culver Support Center in Prairie du Sac, Wisconsin, came together to donate nearly 100 blue jackets to deserving ag students. That is a very cool money saver for those kids who wanted to show their pride. And the Culver's FFA essay contest. That's hard to say. The Culver's FFA Essay Contest awarded $15,000 in funds to three FFA chapters to help them participate in educational events. And, of course, individual restaurants and their guests have over the year raised $200,000 for local ag ed programs through fundraisers, donation canisters, and sales of wall decals. So, folks, if you support American ag education and you want a good burger, go to Culver's. Culver's, if you're looking for a place to sponsor that really appreciates the food and has contributed quite a bit to your bottom line over the past couple years, give us a call because I will continue to dine at Culver's. You keep doing the good work. And we've got a new story out of Iowa. Farmland prices down 15% from the previous year. Um, this is coming from Iowa State University. They note that commodity prices, rising interest rates, and trade disruptions and uncertainty drove Iowa farmland values down for the fourth time in five years. The average statewide value of an acre is now $7,264. This represents a drop of 62 bucks an acre from the 2017 estimate. This is a statewide average, so we're looking at everything low, medium, and high-quality farmland across the state. And they said that uh, they said that this is the fourth time in five years. Last year was we saw a little bit of a jump in farmland values, but overall, since 2013, Iowa farmland values have dropped 17 percent. Dr. Wendong Zhang is the guy in charge of studying this issue at Iowa State, and he says lower commodity prices, in part due to recent trade disruptions, were cited as the most significant negative factor driving down land values. 
He did say that despite the downturns, farmers don't need to worry about a sudden collapse of the U.S. ag sector similar to the 80s. He says, quote, limited land supply and strong demand by farmers still seems to hold up the land market. For five consecutive years, survey respondents have reported fewer sales than the year before, and the ag economy is still robust, with 82% of land in Iowa fully paid for. That is an astounding statistic to me. 82% of land in Iowa doesn't have a mortgage on it. That just boggles my mind. I can't imagine owning something without a mortgage. I can't imagine buying a $3,000 car without a loan. This is hats off to you. If you've got that ground paid for, that is a cool feather in the cap. One final piece of news before we jump into the markets. Yesterday, Secretary Sonny Perdue announced a $600 million pilot program to build broadband infrastructure in rural America. He said during the announcement, quote, high-speed internet e-connectivity is a necessity, not an amenity, vital for quality of life and economic opportunity. So we hope that today rural communities kick off their rural broadband project planning. He said the policy is to connect America not divide it, trying to bridge that urban-rural divide in internet connectivity. And uh, basically, they're going to be rolling this out here very, very quickly, it seems to me. The uh, fellow at the Rural Utility Service, Chad Parker, said that there's going to be $200 million in grants with applications due by April 29th, as well as $200 million in loan and grant combinations those applications are due May 29th, and $200 million in low-interest loans, those applications are due June 28th. And projects funded by this initiative have to serve communities with fewer than 20,000 people with no broadband service or where service is slower than 10 megabits per second download and 1 megabit per second upload. I think that's me. I think I qualify for that. I think Grinnell definitely fits that category. I don't think I've ever gotten more than 10 megabits downloading. Hmm, I wonder, how can I get in on this loan program? Basically, they are going to look at connecting agricultural, production, and marketing, e-commerce, healthcare, and education facilities. That's what they're looking for in the evaluation. And they're going to be holding a series of online webinars and regional in-person workshops to help with the application process. So if that's something you're interested in or if you want to push your local utility to get interested in, uh, go to the Reconnect program at www.reconnect.usda.gov. And now, without further ado, let's jump into the markets before we turn it over to Michael Dolch. And our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Remember... You, too, can have help with your marketing plan. Get in touch with our friends at Zaner by giving them a shout at 312-277-0050 or visit their website at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Looking at the corn market, December contract up one and a quarter cents at 376 and three quarters. The March up half a penny to finish at 384 and three quarters. In soybeans, we sold another 300,000 metric tons to China. And the January soybean contract is down six and a half cents because, of course, it is. Closed the day at nine dollars and a half. The March down six and three quarters to finish at nine thirteen and three quarters. In Chicago wheat, December contract unchanged on the day expires today. That closed at five twenty-seven and three quarters. The March down six cents at five thirty even. Jumping over to the world of livestock. 
Mixed trade in live cattle with the December contract at 12.50, finishing at 119.57.50. The Feb down 45 cents at 122.40. Looking at feeder cattle, the January contract was down 40 cents at 147.57.50. The March down 15 at 145.77 and a half. And in lean hogs, mixed trade, December contract expiring today up 15 cents at 54.95. The Feb down 32.50 to close the day at 64.50. And a quick check of the dairy market. Slight gains today. The December contract in Class 3 milk up a penny at 13.78. The January also up a penny to finish at 14.20. Without further ado, here's Michael Dolch. Well, folks, today we are talking to our good friend Michael Dolch, the Director of Public Affairs over at the Iowa Soybean Association. He's a big wheel. He's plugged into a lot of stuff. And, Michael, thanks for taking the time to join us today. You bet, Mike. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, when we think of public affairs, when we think of policy that affects soybean growers, we've got China buying beans again, we've got a farm bill passed, and we've got the EPA and USDA effectively signing off on the Iowa nutrient reduction strategy. So you're kind of out of a job, aren't you? <laughs> Those are some issues that have been providing job security over the last couple of months. And, you know, it's been a fast-paced start to my career with Iowa Soybean starting early October. Uh, but thrilled for the progress we have made in that short time. But, no, we've got a long way to go as there is a lot still on farmers' plates and on their minds as we close out 18 and look to 2019. Absolutely. Now, now let's start with the Farm Bill. That's the most recent sort of policy that's been grabbing some headlines in the ag press. It's passed the House. It's passed the Senate. Are your indications are that uh, President Trump plans on signing this legislation? I am, Mike, and very optimistic that will happen sooner rather than later, um, as early as next week, of course. And, you know, it really boils down to next week with the Christmas holiday fast approaching. Um, so farmers are very relieved to see the progress so quickly um, in Congress, passing both the House and the Senate uh, overwhelmingly. And, of course, we'll move to the president's desk. And, you know, looking at maybe possibly Tuesday, maybe Wednesday of next week, we have some more positive news and, and can really focus on the implementation of those programs and those rules uh, within the legislation. Now, let's chat a little bit about what soybean growers got out of this farm bill. Was there any major changes or were there any major changes that are, are really going to benefit soybean growers in Iowa and around the country? Sure, Mike, and a lot of folks are uh, categorizing this as almost a status quo bill, but to be honest with you, um, a lack there of change or what little changes and st stuff we saw within the bill, I think that's positive for our farmers. And, you know, you travel the state and you talk to soybean farmers, everything that's on their mind, from the farm bill to trade, water quality, you name it, and the tough harvest and market conditions. Um, but they all said and wanted maintenance of crop insurance, and that did happen here. Uh, crop insurance was protected. It was maintained. Uh, there's some other provisions that I think will be very helpful longer term, uh, including ARC and PLC changes. Um, the reference prices for PLC were changed um, as rising prices over the last couple years and coming years. Um, and then also uh, it'll allow growers to switch between PLC and ARC and give them some more flexibility um, as they look to the 2019 and 2020 crops and over the next five years, the life of the bill. Now, um, that's, also want, that's my next question, Michael. Growers get the chance to switch heading into a new farm bill. Do they get the chance to switch while the farm bill is in action, this 2018 farm bill? Yes, that is correct within the provision that is provided. Uh, so, again, that added flexibility, which was called for um, from the last 2014 Farm Bill, um, 
legislators heard that loud and clear and that change was made. Uh, so some good strides on that front. And I'd also like to mention, too, there is an increase in the Conservation Reserve Program, uh, up from 24 million acres to 27 million acres. And then also some uh, technical changes um, allowing the rate the government pays out to more reflect and closer reflect uh, the price of cash rental. And so I think that's going to be welcomed by a lot of folks here across the state. Now, at the same time, that means that farmers looking to buy land or, or excuse me, cash rent ground, we're now bidding against Uncle Sam again, which is kind of frustrating, especially for younger or, or more cash-strapped producers. Sure, sure. And, and within the compromise agreement, the conference report, uh, the rental rate the government is paying will be set at 85% of that average cash rental rate. Uh, so that tries to get at what you just talked about, um, trying for folks not to have to compete against Uncle Sam. Um, therefore providing the opportunity for young beginning farmers and ranchers to become involved and even those that have been in the business for a while, uh, an opportunity to rent ground uh, at a decent rate. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned market conditions are a challenge, and I don't think that's news to any of our listeners, but we kind of like that first MFP payment, that market facilitation program payment. Mr. Dolch, are we going to get a second round of payments under that program, or can we kiss that money goodbye? Sure, Mike, and that was actually a question that our directors here at Iowa Soybean Association and our delegates at our policy conference that happened just yesterday asked Mr. Steve Sensky, the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, uh, point blank whether or not we were going to see those payments. And it seems as though there's a bit of an arm wrestle between USDA and OMB at this point. Um, OMB uh, does not like to spend money, as you know. Um, that's their job, um, to scale back some of the, the government spending. And um, obviously it's good news that we're China's now buying U.S. soybeans, uh, but again, at 1.3 to 1.5 million metric tons is a drop in the bucket compared to where we were at 30 to 35 million. Uh, so that really underscores the need for that second and full 82.5 cent second payment, uh, something that we will continue to press our legislators to advocate on our behalf and then also uh, through the USDA and White House as well. All right. Now, now you mentioned we're happy to see China back into the U.S. market. They have been making some sales here over the past few, or making some purchases over the past few days. Michael, you were plugged in in D.C. You've got ears all over the country. What's going on here? Are we going to get some kind of a major deal with China? Can we expect them to come back full force into the U.S. market? Sure, and I'm not sure if uh, full force um, is something that we'll see anytime soon. Again, we were at 30 to 35 million metric tons. Um, that's U.S. soybeans to China. And even with the slow trickle that we're seeing now, the, the one purchase here a couple of days ago and another 300,000 uh, here just yesterday today, um, I think we're optimistic this could lead to, to more, an incremental step forward. Um, but this isn't the sale overnight isn't going to fix the prolonged low prices that we've seen uh, since this trade war has really you know, started to strangle rural America, rural com com uh, communities and farmers. Um, therefore, we're going to have to start, you know, building on this momentum with China, but then also exploring other opportunities. And, you know, one other provision in the Farm Bill I'd like to mention that may help for that is the um, access to MAP and FMD funding. So market access program money and foreign market development monies that are used to uh, maintain uh, current existing markets, but then also uh, look elsewhere for new and emerging and how we send soybeans and find different landing zones for our products here in the state. Now, Michael, how do those programs work? Who gets to spend the money? Who gets to develop those markets? Walk us through the actual in-practice 
uh, usage of those uh, MAP and, and FMD funds? Sure, sure, and that's uh, USDA. Those are both USDA programs and initiatives. Um, they too do take a lot of input um, from different, you know, export import groups. Uh, USEC, U.S. Soybean Export Council, being one of them, um, helping to strategize. You know, where do we see uh, potential? Um, where have we tapped out existing markets? Um, and therefore helping, you know, kind of a collaboration partnership on, on where those monies are best focused. Um, and there are different grant programs within both of those uh, MAP and FMD programs, uh, so a USEC per se could tap into those dollars um, at any point through through that competitive grant process. Okay, and send people over to Myanmar or India or wherever to explore export possibilities. Sure, sure, really boots on the ground to help fund those trips. And, you know, there was a conference in Barcelona here about a week, week and a half ago um, that a lot of soybean uh, buyers, traders, and even some of the folks here at ISA attended, uh, really just trying to build out some relationships. Um, I think folks across the, the country and the world know that, you know, the U.S. produces really good quality soybeans, and they're willing to pay, you know, a little bit extra for those. Um, but obviously, um, everyone is a bit strapped now and, and looking for um, the best bang for their buck. And we want to make sure that, you know, we those relationships continue on and uh, we are sending that good quality bean um, around the world. Absolutely, around the world, and, and hopefully we'll be sending more and more to our neighbors if the USMCA agreement gets signed. What, is, what are you hearing on that, Michael? Absolutely, and all three countries um, have signed off on it, and I say that in the sense that, you know, the ink's dry on the paper. However, it will be up to this new starting uh, early next year, 2019, um, to, to vet that. Um, to really send that forward by a, a simple vote. And um, looking forward to, to that moving forward. Um, again, very good, um, offering some predictability and stability uh, moving forward for some of our soybean farmers and, and farmers across the state. Does it sound like with the change in Congress that the USMCA is going to get voted through? Is that your, your read of the situation? Sure, and I, w I would like to think so. I think there's a, a wide coalition of folks that do support uh, the agreement in place, AG being one of them, obviously, um, just given um, what it means for us and our market access uh, to continue that. Um, I know there will be some issues uh, regarding labor, uh, the labor provisions within uh, the new agreement. However, I think we can massage those and work through those uh, early this next year and, and arrive at a good place and a good place that means it is approved to you know, vote by Congress. All right. Now, another thing I want to talk to you about, a, a week or so ago, there was a letter issued, a joint letter by the EPA and the USDA praising market-based approaches to nutrient reduction. And the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy is something that I know Iowa Soybean has been very active in participation in and running tests and trials. What did this letter signify to you, Michael? What does that mean nationwide for nutrient reduction? Sure, and I think it it's a strong signal that there is a t an appetite to address nutrient runoff and reduce the, the nutrients that uh, come from cropland and across the country. Um, I, Iowa Sleeping Association in particular has been very, very aggressive on this front, going on the offense uh, with their on-farm research programs, um, 
voluntarily, obviously through uh, partnerships with farmers across the state in different watersheds, uh, showing what different management practices, whether it is a buffer strip, a bioreactor, what that really means for nutrient uh, reduction and how we can combat loss given you know unpredictable weather here in Iowa too, and that's a lot of it. Uh, we do get a lot of rainfall at any given time, and that does affect nutrient loss and runoff. You bet. Now, Michael, we've talked for the bulk of this interview about things that have just happened and you've helped break it down for us. Let's look ahead a little bit. What policy issues are you watching? What do growers need to be aware of or perhaps making contact with legislators about to get things moving in D.C. or in their state capitals? Sure, and I think this is a, as good a time as any to talk about it, uh, just given um, there are a lot of new faces and new places, both here in Iowa, Des Moines at the state capitol, and out in Washington, D.C. at our nation's capital. Uh, so first and foremost, it's going to be education. Uh, identify those new faces and new people and new places. Um, sit down and introduce yourself and have the conversation. Uh, for us here at Iowa Soybean, uh, we'll still maintain um, a lot of conversation around the Farm Bill, uh, now when the work starts, because we have a bill in place, or should early next week, but it boils down to the implementation and drafting of a lot of these programs at USDA, different departments and agencies. Uh, so keeping a watchful eye on how those progress and develop. Um, something we haven't talked about is uh, Waters of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, that new rule was unveiled uh, this week, um, and they applaud EPA and the Army Corps for really developing that um, in conjunction with stakeholders' comments, um, American Soybean Association and ISA comments uh, in particular, um, trying to provide some regulatory certainty for farmers and landowners moving forward. Um, I think that will be kind of a hot topic this next year, some of that regulatory reform. Um, continuing to make sure that farmers and ranchers have the ability to operate um, and do what they do best, uh, and that's put food on the table, clothes on people's backs, and fuel in cars. Um, so those are just a couple. I uh, more so on the federal level and on the state level. Equipment. You know, we had some momentum this last session with water quality with Senate File 512. Uh, look forward for an opportunity uh, to capitalize and build on that momentum. Um, and move forward toward even more long-term dedicated funding um, that will work hand-in-hand and complement the nutrient reduction strategy here in the state. Absolutely, and perhaps provide a roadmap for other states who can't quite muster up that dedicated funding. They can look at what Iowa's doing and and then uh, put some practices into place on farms across the Midwest. That's absolutely right, Mike. That's certainly something we'll be active in employing a, a kind of an aggressive role in going on offense on some of that as well. Fantastic. Michael Dolch, hey, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or keep up to date on what's happening from a policy perspective, where could they go to get more information? Sure, sure. Everything is uh, listed on Iowa Soybean Association's website, iasoybeans.com. Uh, all the staff are listed there with contact information. More than happy to answer questions about our policy in particular, provide you with a lay of the land legislatively um, and an outlook going forward at any point, Mike. Fantastic. Michael Dolt, thanks for taking the time to chat with us today. You bet. Thanks so much, Mike. Well, I sure am thankful that we can pay people to observe D.C. policy like Dolch. It's uh, not something I want to spend my day in life, day and night doing, but I'm glad somebody is, and they can break it down to us in a reasonable way. Breaking things down is what we try to do on the Ag News Daily Podcast. So if you want to get other things broken down, you can check out all of our past episodes on our website at agnewsdaily.com. Or you can interact with us on social media. Just search for Ag News Daily on Facebook or on Twitter. We are there on both, and we want to hear from you, our listeners. With that being said, I want to wish you a great weekend. 
and I'm going to let you go.